there are just uh, moments when the music ties perfectly to the message and to the, the scriptures that we're going to look at today. As we look at John chapter 12, John chapter 12, on the hardest pill to swallow. I, I don't know about you, but as I've got older, they, they just keep adding pills for me to take. And then there are supplements. You know, you ought to take this supplement and that supplement. And, you, you know, some of those things are about the size of a horse pill. And you got to make sure you got about 20 ounces of water just to get one down. And it says take four. And you're going, help me, Jesus. I mean, you just, you know, you got your vitamin. Now the vitamins, you need more vitamins. You need vitamins for the vitamins. And you need more vitamins to supplement the vitamins that you're already taking. And then you got your other things that you need to take. Some of you that are just, you know, taking a little pill once a day, you'll get there. You'll, under, you'll understand this. Uh, but, you know, I just wish they'd make all of them small. You know, I used to take this thing that's, you know, it's got glucosamine in it. And, you know, it's supposed to help your joints and not smoke a joint, but help your joints. I just want to be, want to be clear on that in light of the way this country is going. Uh, but, you know, it is a big pill, and it wasn't coated. And every time I'd take it, I'd kind of go, <coughs> you know, I might cough it up and have to take it again. And then they came out with one tiny pill. I thought I had had personal revival uh, when they did that because, they said, man, I could swallow it. I can almost swallow this without water. But there is the hardest pill to swallow. The hardest pill to swallow is the burden of putting myself under unrealistic expectations. The hardest pill to swallow is seeing the promises of God up here and the poverty of my life down here. Knowing all that God has for me in Christ Jesus and yet seeing over and over in my life times when I just utterly fail to live up to that, that, that gap. To, the scripture promises much more, and too often we experience too little. I can tell you this, I've spent a lot of my time, especially in my early Christian life, looking for a book or a conference or a tape or a seminar or a magic pill that would somehow transport me into this new dimension of faith in Christ where I, I never had to struggle, I never had a battle, I, I never had the ups and downs of life. I, I, was, I was looking for something easy to swallow. I was looking for a way that I could just get to that moment and then I'd be through and I could coast the rest of the way. But what I've discovered is the joy of the journey. Every journey has stops and starts. Every journey has a side trip. In every journey, you have to gas up, you have to fill up, you have to look at where you are on the map, you have to reposition yourself in the journey. When I think about that, I think about the children of Israel. 
to have gone from the land of promise into the land of Egypt, and there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, and he put the children of Egypt in bondage. They were delivered from bondage. Then, because of unbelief, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until finally they got to Canaan, the land of promise. Now, you know that Canaan is not heaven. Canaan in the Bible is not heaven. Canaan in the Bible is the victorious life because even in the victorious life, there are battles. I mean, you do not reach a point in the Christian life, young or old, where there are no battles to be fought and where the enemy just says, I'm going to leave you alone. And so when I look at that and I began to look at this thought for this message today, the, the promises of God can actually be boiled down into two categories. By the blood of Jesus, we will be saved from hell and saved to heaven. I mean, when you look at Scripture, the redemptive plan of God, the, the scarlet thread through the Bible, we, we are saved from hell and saved to heaven. It's not enough to be saved from hell. We want to be saved to heaven. But the second thing that is equally as true is that by the indwelling of the Spirit, we can move from bondage to a spiritual, spiritual heritage and legacy. And if you read the Bible with those two thoughts in mind, what is this saying to me about my salvation, the redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ that put me on a path to heaven? And what is this saying about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that removes me from the bondage of self-defeat and self-effort and allows me to live a life worth living and live a life with a legacy. It's the picture of the Christ-centered life. It's the picture of the crucified life. And you see it all in Scripture. Take up your cross and follow me. I die daily. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Forgive 70 times 7. He who loves his life shall lose it. To know him in the power of his resurrection. We like that part and the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't so much like that part. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. These are all a part of the Christ-centered life, but these are hard pills to swallow, to get up every day and to know that I need to die daily to myself. And so we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 12 and verse 23. John 12 and verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, he's got to go the same way I'm going, the same path I'm taking. And where I am, 
there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now the disciples would have understood this illustration and the, what Jesus is saying here, not fully, but after the Spirit came, they would surely have understood it more. And the context of it all is in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He did not say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. Jesus saw the picture not just of the cross that was to come, but the resurrection and the ascension and all the promises of God being put into place in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his return. Jesus was portraying to them the big picture. It wasn't just the cross. It was the process that the cross would initiate in the lives of the believers. He saw beyond the cross to the glory that would follow. And so the first point is that Christ-centered life involves dying to self. He says the hour has come. Now's the time. This is a statement. These four words are words of purpose, of meaning, of focus. The hour has come. Today's the day. Now's the time. The reason the hour had come is because Gentiles had come asking to see Jesus, and that was a fulfillment of prophecy. And when they came, then Jesus began to set his face toward the cross. You see, the Christian life typically begins with a great spurt of growth and enthusiasm and energy. And I mean, we just, we just can't get enough of it. But, but left to ourselves, if we just deal in the realm of enthusiasm, at some point, our enthusiasm wanes. At some point, it, it just gives out. We still love Jesus, but we're waiting for some emotional lift to our lives that will get us over the next hill and get us over the next hump and, and get us through the next crisis in our lives. We're looking for something that fixes us emotionally rather than going back to it's not the emotion, it's the expression of Christ about how we glorify God with our lives. This is about surrender. You see, I have to surrender my strengths to God. My strengths are no help to God. God gave me the strengths that he's given me, but he also gave me the weakness in my built-in nature, the, the spiritual gifts and other things. But I have to surrender my strengths to God because I can't help God out. And one of the reasons it's a hard pill to swallow is when we think God needs our help. No, God needs our surrender. I surrender my strengths to him because God works through surrendered vessels. Now, let's, let's just be honest. We are all in, in our nature self-willed and in some ways self-sufficient. And, and the truth of the matter is, Let's just, I'm, I'm just being honest, you be honest. The truth of the matter is, we think we're indispensable. Somewhere in the back of our mind, we think we'll never get a bad doctor's report, we'll never get a bad uh, 
uh, outcome on anything. We'll never have a bad situation in our lives if we can shuck and jive and move enough and dance around the issues and avoid all these things. At some point that God will say, that person is so important that they are indispensable to me. Isn't it funny that God didn't say that about Peter and Paul and James and John? He didn't say it about Billy Graham. He didn't say it about Dale Moody. He didn't say it about Charles Spurgeon. He doesn't say it about anybody. It seems that God is able to do without a lot of people because the kingdom is bigger than the people that are in it. We are not indispensable. None of us are indispensable. Uh, as my friend Ken Jenkins says, there's an expiration date on the back of all of us. We just don't know where it is because it's somewhere back here. And we can't see it. But we live as if God can't work without us. We are insufficient. I'm insufficient, you're insufficient. I'm insufficient to save myself. You're insufficient to save yourself. Your, your good works, my good works can't save me. I'm insufficient to keep myself saved. And I'm insufficient on my own to live the life that God demands that I live. Call it what you will, the old man, the flesh, the old nature. Uh, it gets in the way. It gets in the way of our lives. Jesus is simply telling us the Holy Spirit came into our lives to reproduce the life of Christ in us. Romans 8 calls it the Spirit of Christ. And when we look around, we sometimes feel like we're in the bondage of Egypt, still enslaved to some habit or some sin, or we're wandering in the wilderness eating dust, and we're asking ourselves a question when we're alone. If the victorious life is true, why do I live in defeat so much? If it really works, why, is it work, why isn't it working for me? And the cup of defeat is drinking from a cup that says, try harder, do better, be more sincere. And that's not the pill we need to swallow. That's the pill we choke on. Dr. David Haney said, we tend to view Christ as Savior as the cause and Lordship as a possible but not necessary effect. Biblically, however, Lordship is the cause and salvation is the effect. One is saved because Christ is Lord. Salvation is the consequence. Secondly, the Christ-centered life is revealed in an agricultural illustration. Except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die. The Jews would have understood this. Grain was a common yet vital part of their lives. It, it carried a connotation of blessing, also provisions, but also of judgment. There were the grain offerings in the sacrificial system. A grain offering was a part of the first fruits offering of the land at the start of the harvest. A grain offering was a symbol of God's blessing and in tough times, grain was a symbol of God's provision. When God told Joseph, you store up grain and you fill the grain in Egypt because there's coming years of famine 
It was because God was showing that he was the source of our provision. The absence of grain suggests God's judgment. Hosea said it was like worshiping idols, a stalk of grain without a head, a fruitless harvest. Isaiah compared the coming destruction to a reaper gathering grain. But here in John chapter 12, Jesus uses the image to explain the purpose and meaning of his death and to describe the paradox of his life emerging from death. So he was judged so that we might be blessed. He was crucified so that God could be glorified. Truly, truly, he says, listen carefully, I'm telling you the truth. The grain of wheat that falls into the ground and germinates and springs up is the only valuable grain of wheat. What he's illustrating here is that there's no glory without suffering. There's no life without dying to self. Our pride and strength will never lead us to God. He's looking for brokenness. He's looking for weakness. He's looking for surrender. One of the great paradoxical principles of life is death is the way to life. And Jesus was a grain of wheat. The hour had come for Jesus, like a grain of wheat, to die, to be buried and to be resurrected and ascended so that God would be glorified. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on the life of Jesus having been lived the way he intended the Son of Man, Son of God, to live his life. In other words, it would not have been enough for Jesus to have just been a prophet or a teacher or even an earthly king on the throne of a physical Israel. The hour had come. His death makes possible our lives. A seed on a shelf or a seed in a bag is useless. It has to be planted. It has to die. Then it brings forth life. Warren Wiersbe said, there is both beauty and bounty when a seed dies and fulfills its purpose. If a seed could talk, it would no doubt complain about being put into the cold, dark earth. But the only way it can achieve the goal is by being planted. Jesus was born to die so that those of us dead in trespasses and sin could live. Now, there's some options for seed. A, a seed can resist the process. We're, we're, we're seeds of grain. We can resist the process and become hard and narrow and useless, not willing to die to ourselves, just wanting life on our terms. And when we do that, we don't glorify God. Seeds can give themselves to nourish others. A seed is crushed, it is put into the ground, and in that process it begins to bless others. You see, when someone embraces the Christ-centered life, then and only then, I believe, the world begins to stand up and take notice. When someone embraces the Christ-centered life, that old things have passed away and all things have become new. And by the way, that's a process. 
That's a process. Because truth of the matter is, we can die to self today and tomorrow start digging in dirt saying, I wonder if I'm really dead. <laughs> and start digging up the dirt and looking at to see if the seed's going to bear any fruit. But when we are the grain of wheat, we must fall in the ground and die or else we abide alone. When the world begins to see a Christ-centered life, then it begins to ask the question, whatever happened to old so-and-so? Whatever happened? I mean, they just changed. I mean, whatever happened to them? The answer is, we're gone. We're covered up. What they're seeing is Christ, and they can't explain that. They can't explain how a person can move from being self-absorbed and self-centered to being absorbed with the life of Christ and focused on his glory and of his good in a kingdom that is beyond this world. What others think about us, folks, is not the issue of life. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time growing up and I actually spent a lot of time early in my ministry worrying about what people thought about me. You know, do you ever do this when you're in middle school? I wonder if that one wonder if that girl thinks about me. And you know what I learned? She wasn't thinking about me. She was thinking about herself and wondering what I thought about her. You see, all of us, left to ourselves, just think about ourselves. That's our own nature. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the indwelling Christ, so that we get our eyes off of ourselves and simply ask the question every day, is my all on the altar? I mean, that's the only question. And when we go to bed at night, Lord, was my all on the altar? And if it wasn't, then I get it right before I put my head on my pillow. Is my all on the altar? William Borden said, no remorse, no regret, no retreat. That's a good way to live. No remorse, no regret, no retreat. Thirdly, the Christ-centered life demands a biblical, biblical perspective. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. New English Bible translates that, the man who loves himself is lost. This verse is a statement from the lips of the one who lived it out and sent his spirit to empower us to live it out. I mean, this world is not all there is. And dying to self means laying my agenda and my thoughts and my choices and my ideas on the altar. If I love my life so much that I can't die to self and let the resurrected power of the crucified Christ live in me, then at the end of life, I have done very little for the kingdom. I've done very little for the kingdom. I must ask myself, am I willing to die to my desires, to my plans, and to my goals? Am I on the same page with the Lord? Could it be that because we have been blessed and privileged 
to live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we've read our founding fathers' documents that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Somewhere, our desire to be good Americans has derailed us from being great Christians. We're committed to life. We're committed to liberty. We're committed to the pursuit of happiness. The Constitution doesn't promise happiness. It promises the pursuit of happiness. But if that's my life goal, is to be happy, then do I miss the best of what God has for me with my life? Is it basically true that we could live good lives and still just be self-centered and wake up one day and realize we never died to self? We never surrendered our strength to God's strength. James Mahoney says, for the most part, our philosophy of Christian service and our Christian lifestyle is based on a faulty premise. There are some things I am to do. There are some things I am not to do. But these do's and don'ts are based on the same faulty premise. They are based on the premise, I can. Now, the only place in the Bible that you're going to see I can is you're going to see it when it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't say I can do all things through Michael Catt who strengthens himself. I can do all things through Christ. The issue is not my convenience, not my likes or my dislikes. The issue of life is ultimately the glory of God. Dying to self is not optional equipment. Everything Jesus did, he did to glorify the Father. Everything he did. He did it to glorify the Father. That means you can cut your grass to the glory of God and to the pleasure of your neighbors. I mean, you can take your Christmas tree down by the end of January to the glory of God. You can wash dishes today to the glory of God. God, I'm doing this because you've given me life, you've given me breath, you've given me strength. And what I do, I want to glorify you in it. I want to be able to be a living witness of your power in my life. Number four, the Christ-centered life is one of absolute surrender. You see, there was a cross before Jesus before there was a restored glory for Jesus. He laid aside not his deity, but that manifestation of his glory which the disciples saw in part on the Mount of Transfiguration. But when he ascended to the Father, he was returned to his glory. And for us, there's a dying to self. If we want to be with Christ and reign with Christ and rule with Christ and worship Christ in glory, we have to die to self in this life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where was Jesus going? To the cross, he must follow me. 
You could really boil down the call of God on my life and your life to three simple words. Be with me. God wants us to be with him in our daily living and one day in eternity to be with him for all eternity. And yet our flesh longs for exaltation. The problem is we want to be Christians but not change our lives. And we don't like words like sacrifice and surrender and submission. Much of what we do in life, quite honestly, for evangelicals and people that are not saved, is we get busy as we can be so that we can ignore the fact that on the inside we feel empty. And so if I can stay busy, I won't think about how empty I am. And so we never rest in the Lord. And we never rest on the promises of God. We just fill our calendars up with stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, when you're gone, it won't matter one bit to your children how busy you were. Just were you with them? You see, it's easy to get busy. And if you don't get busy, somebody else will get you busy. I mean, they'll get you busy so that you don't have time to do anything but be busy when you're off work. But the goal of the Christian life is to be with Christ. Number five, the Christ-centered life is the only life that glorifies God. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. He didn't say, Father, make all those Christians out there famous or popular or rich or powerful. It was the glory of God that motivated the reformers. It's the glory of God that has motivated every revival that's ever happened in this world. Jesus was born to die. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is my life's purpose, my reason for being. Jesus didn't say, what shall I do? But he said, what shall I say? And so really it boils down to we pray one of two prayers. Lord, me first. Or, Lord, glorify your name. Either I'm praying for God to let me be first, or I'm praying for God to glorify his name. Life through death is the way of Christ and the Christ-centered life. The Holy Spirit wants to use our bodies to the work of Jesus in the world. The filling of the Spirit is not just his life in you, it is his life through you. That's where joy comes. Jesus others than you. It's not you, Jesus, and then others. It's not you, others, and then Jesus. It's joy is Jesus, others, and you. They asked George Mueller how he had functioned and how he 
literally says there were thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of answered prayers in his life. He was a man that lived by faith, operated orphanages with thousands of children and, and never asked anybody for a dime and never went out and asked for food. But God's provision was always there for George Mueller. And one day someone came to Mueller and asked him, what's the secret to your life? Mueller said, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, taste, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends. So, I've come today to invite you to a funeral. Your funeral. I've come today to invite you to your funeral where you die to self and you quit trying to help God out or trying to get saved by work or keep yourself saved by doing good works but you just simply die to self. You see, how we choose to live is determined if we choose to die. To die to self, to be a living sacrifice, to lay our all on the altar. I don't know if you've thought about this, but you realize that every day of your life, every day of your life, somebody is writing their version of your obituary. It will either be a legacy of faith, a witness of the gospel, a witness of the power of Christ to work in your life, or it'll be wood, hay, and stubble that just burns up in the end. It'll be gold, silver, and precious stone, and there'll be great rewards and glory, or it'll just, and it'll be gone. You'll be saved, as Paul says, but as by fire. So I'm inviting you to bow your heads right now and close your eyes and to make your seat an altar. And I'm inviting you to die to yourself. Say, Lord, I want my testimony to be that I am remembered as one who died to myself. I don't want it to be just for a moment or a day, but I want my life to have been an impact for the cause of Christ. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, we're going to give you an opportunity when we stand and sing to step out and come find one of our men here at the end of the aisle and Say, I need to trust Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I need to give my life to Jesus. You see, you got to die to self to do that. To give your life to Jesus, you have to give your life away. And say, Lord, I can't. 
but you can. I can't forgive my own sin, but you can forgive my sin. I can't save myself, but you can save me. So we're going to stand. And they're going to sing. And we're not going to sing long. We're going to take a moment and give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And for those of you that know Christ, to just make sure that today you leave this place dead to self. Let's stand as they sing.